uh, different states around the country are opening uh, up a little bit and allowing people to do a little bit more. Uh, some, some places allow gyms to open and people to go in and work out and bring pain to themselves under the idea of living longer lives and things like that. It was always incongruous to me that by bringing pain, I can live longer. There's one um, nationally known gym brand that has as its calling card, uh, the world judges, we don't. It's, it's powerful, and it plays into a deep psychology because people, here's another irony of gyms, people go to the gym to look better but can't stand the way they look when they go in. And like, ooh, don't look at me. We're a judgment-free zone, says this brand of gymnasium. Now, that should be true of the church, but uh, there's enough cynicism in New York City and probably resting somewhere in the inner crevice, maybe not even in the inner crevice of each and every one of your hearts, to scoff, if not out loud, then quietly, like, yeah, the church, a judgment-free zone. There, there's an idea, huh? Because some of you... Sadly, and I mean that, sadly, have experienced judgment within the body of Christ. And frankly, it's a miracle that you're here and haven't just said bye-bye, like many have. And if you care at all about the body of Christ, that brings a toll when you think about it. The, the place where brokenness ought to be embraced, where weakness is actually a strength. And we do a phenomenal job of shooting our wounded. God help us. The passage in Romans chapter 12 this morning is an amazing antidote to the Luke 6 passage that you just heard read. I didn't plan it that way. It's another one of those very small, very sweet providences that just resonate with my soul, that I can put an order of service together, some of it planned, and some of it just moving along in the readings as we're doing in the Psalms and in, in the Gospel of Luke and in the Book of Romans, and then you have those Sundays where, zing, everything just lines up. And you think, man, am I awesome. You know, exactly the opposite. In fact, lying in bed last night, falling asleep, looking at some of these things for the next to last time, I thought, Ronsley, you are not awesome, but God is. And I couldn't wait to get here to say that. <laughs> Romans 12 is an antidote to Luke 6. An antidote not in the sense that Luke 6 is bad, but it answers the question, those hard teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Luke 6, we heard Jesus' words of warning about hypocritically judging others. About seeing a speck in the eye of another while overlooking the log in our own eyes. Jesus was a master at the metaphor, wasn't he? I mean, we can, we can zero right in and say, ooh, look at that speck in your eye from a thousand feet away. And then this grotesque irony that I've got a Lincoln log hanging out of my eye. 
Nobody did not get the point. In the Romans 12 passage today, Paul teaches us that the biblical way around the sinful dilemma of hypocritical judgment is the four words that you've already heard several times. Let love be genuine. If love is genuine, then you will not be a hypocritical judge. Pastor, make that connection a little tighter for me. I'm glad, I'm glad you asked that because I will do that because I'm going to unpack for you here multiple times throughout this brief time together today, that this word judgment has behind it the word hypocrite, except it's negative. So it literally says, let love be unhypocritical, which in one sense, biblically speaking at least, is redundant, because love is not hypocritical. And to say, let love be unhypocritical is just to be repeating oneself. So standard an idea would this have been in the early church. Paul doesn't even put a verb in that sentence. I'm supplying the verb. The English translations supply the verb. It's not there in the, in the original language. It simply says, love unhypocritical. Roman house churches, got it. That's very interesting. Let love be genuine. So we continue our study of Romans 12. I hope you're enjoying it. It's one of my favorite chapters. You might have guessed that by now. And we're going to dwell. I'm doing a lot of dwelling. Romans chapter 12. It's a chapter you have to drill down to. You know, all these tweets that Paul has sent out in the passage that John just read, it's like it makes your head spin. Like, wait a minute. If I just, if I just take a week to settle on one of these things, that's enough. Let alone the fact that there's about 20 of them here. That's why I'm breaking this little section up. So 9 to 13, the the passage we'll dwell on today, is a section defined by the biblically central idea, the biblically central theme of love. Let love be genuine. Now, I don't have the outline that usually appears right here. And the three points will be, or the two points will be, because Paul gets a little funky, truth be told. We struggle to understand exactly how he's working all of this stuff. And so what I want you to do is follow me along because there's a series of connections, a series of how questions. Okay, let love be genuine. How? And then he answers that question. But we get to the end of that answer, and then we have to ask that question again. How are we going to do that? He takes us on another series of answers. And then we get to the end of that, and he takes us on another series of answers. So it's going to be how, 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 how. You with me? You got that. That's what we're going to do. And I'll signal to you when we switch house. But I want you to follow the inherent logic that Paul has here to enable us to understand all under the umbrella of this is what genuine love is. All under the umbrella of by the mercies of God. We cannot lose the anchor of 12, 1 and 2. Cannot lose that anchor. It's what governs the entire section from 12 to 16. By the mercies of God, stop being conformed to the pattern of the age and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what the Christian life will look like, ought to look like. And this is what biblical transformed mind love looks like, not what the world and conformity to it may define it. 
Let love be genuine. Somebody say how. Good. I'm glad you asked. When Paul talks about God's grace gifts, he also talks about love and unity. I want to be sure you hear me say that. Remember last week, a couple of weeks now, we've been talking about gifts and talking about new normal. And I urged you to get off your pew muscles last week and to seek the Lord about regarding what your gift or gifts are and how it is that we need you off the bench and in the game. And that I am lesser of a Christian if you're not participating and vice versa. Many people, several people, have likened the church to a football game. Namely, there are 22 people on the field battling their brains out who are in dire need of rest, while 20,000 people are watching them in need of exercise. Get on the field. For your joy. And for the building up of the body, remember we finished with Ephesians 4, remember? Building up of the body in love, as each part does its work. So every time Paul talks about love, every time, somewhere in the context is further discussion about unity. So he talks about gifts. And you look at the gifts, and then there's a chapter or a teaching on love and unity. Why do you suppose that's the case? It's an amazing thing. You would think that letters to Christians wouldn't require them to be enveloped in love and unity when they're talking about gifts. Can you imagine believers, even back then, taking gifts and rubbing them in the nose of their Christian friend? I have this and you don't. And Paul says, Time out. If you're doing that, or conversely, oh, this is all I have. I have the gift of helps. So all I get to do is empty the garbage every time there's a function going on. Or, you know, God just didn't seem, seem to give me something better than that. That's sinful. It can also be divisive. And so Paul says, hey, grace gifts, I need to talk about love and unity. And he does it here. He does it classically in 1 Corinthians, right? 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, longest section that Paul has in the Bible on gifts. And what's 1 Corinthians 13? The love chapter. The love chapter. It's the center of Paul's teaching on spiritual gifts. Gifts in 12 and 14, love, right in the middle I, I, that's why I always crack up the weddings that I've done or the weddings I've been to. Everybody reads 1 Corinthians 13. And I sit there and I laugh through the whole thing inside, obviously, being the kind of guy that I am. Because all I'm thinking is, do you know why 1 Corinthians 13 is in the Bible? It's because people are yelling and screaming and trying to outdo one another all the way. Is that what you want your wedding to be about? Love is patient, kind. Does not rejoice in evil. You got yours. Woohoo! Is not love. It keeps no records of wrong. My wife and I struggle with that one. We intentionally refuse to weaponize our past sins. Six years ago, says she to me, you did. She rarely does that, by the way. But that's the kind of thing we're talking about. You've all been victims of that. You've all done that. 
so have I. If you didn't do that, then I wouldn't be doing this now. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. That might be something, but it's not love, biblically speaking. As hard as that might be for those of us who have been victimized by that kind of thing. First century Roman house churches and 21st century Staten Island churches a call to self-sacrificial, other-centered love. That too, by the way, is redundant because love is self-sacrificing. Love is other-centered. Check out the clip of Brother Moise preaching on Friday. We love the self I'm just going to let that sit there. Let love be genuine without hypocrisy. How? Thank you. Verse 9, after he says, let love be genuine, he tells us, first negatively, abhor what is evil. There are a few things in the Bible where we're given not only permission, but command, if you please, to hate. And one of the things that we are to hate is evil. Abhor is a strong word. It's not even strong enough. Paul's language literally goes to hate exceedingly. Don't be indifferent. Hate it. Love to be ingenu- If love to, is to be genuine, anywhere there is evil in the beloved, you're going to loathe it. You're going to hate it. You're going to despise it. Positively, instead, you, instead of clinging or holding to anything that is evil, instead, positively, last part of verse 9, you'll hold fast to what is good. Let love be genuine. How? By abhorring what is evil and by holding fast to what is good. Hold fast is the counter to the hating exceedingly because the whole fast is cling to. It literally comes from the same kind of scenario that's described back in Genesis 1 and 2 where Adam and Eve got together and they clung to one another. It has that kind of level of intimacy. So genuine love will abhor evil, but it will cling to. It'll become intimate with that which is good. It'll desire it, like a husband ought to desire a wife, and a wife ought to desire a husband. That kind, if you've known that kind of intimacy, try to allow your mind to move a little bit and to say, that's the kind of relationship I should have with that which is good. Those are the characteristics of love. Let love be genuine. How? By abhorring what is evil and loving what is good. Holding fast to clinging to that which is good. Now, here's the next elevation. Here's the next question. How then do I, we, hold fast to that which is good? This is the way Paul's constructing this. Doesn't always come out as clear in our translations, but that's how he's building this. It's another ratchet up. Okay, so now how... Are we to hold fast to what is good? Now, just keep reading the Bible with me. Verse 10, we are to hold fast to what is good because Paul helps us. He helps us. We hold fast to what is good by loving one another with brotherly affection. So what is the good? We ask ourselves, not to get overly philosophical, but we have to ask these profound questions. What is good? 
Paul helps us. Verse 10, what is good is loving one another with brotherly affection. That's, that's what's good. What's good, Pastor Mark? Look at your neighbor and love him. That's good, biblically speaking. Love him with brotherly affection, or as one English translation says it, love each other like the members of your family. Now, if you're anything like me, you scoff a little bit. My mother's side of the family, I get this. Boom, this works for me. My, the love I have for my mother, the love I have for my brother, my aunts and uncle, on my mother's side, rock solid. My father's side, I don't know a thing about it. And I've done enough counseling over decades in the ministry such that I read this out loud in a public setting like this and people are saying, you're kidding me. You do not want me to love my neighbor the way I love members of my family with whom I haven't spoken in seven years. So let's be careful with that. We'll be careful with that, but the point is not lost. Love one another. What is the good? The good is loving one another with brotherly affection. You hear me say regularly in this pulpit that the ties in Christ that you and I share are stronger, biblically speaking, than blood ties. That's a big, big challenge to me. I'm very close to my mother, very close to my brother. And when I look out at you and think that you ought to be in that same category, I'm readily confessing to you that's a struggle. However, it's a biblical reality that is incumbent upon me. So what do I do? I pray that I would love Vinny like I love my brother, my biological brother, because you and I are as close, if not closer, than blood. Now, if that's causing your back teeth to set, that's not necessarily a bad thing, because what's happening is that your conformity to this age is being challenged. If you sit there and you dig your foot in, to change the metaphor, and say, there's no way I'm loving you more than I'm loving this person in my family. And I just want to gently come alongside of you and say, are you sure? Because we've got some reckoning to do if we're rightly understanding what's going on here. How do we hold fast to what is good? We love one another with brotherly affection. Keep reading verse 10. We outdo one another in showing honor. You heard me say repeatedly from this pulpit, the only legitimate place for competition in the body of Christ is right here. The only place where competition is legitimate in the body of Christ is in the competition to outdo one another in showing honor. Now just think about some of the things that you perhaps have experienced, the backbiting, the gossiping, the slandering. That, and if you haven't experienced that in the church, I'm very sad to say you just haven't been in the church long enough. What, I want to ask this question uh, because I can't come with the same intensity over every single one of these staccato-like verses that Paul just rips off right here in, in, in chapter 12 of Romans. But let me ask you the one question. If you pick just one of these before you leave today and you dedicate the rest of your life to living that out, what would happen to your life? What would happen to the body of Christ? Pick one. Find one where the Spirit of God is going, ding! What would the church of Jesus Christ look like if we took this verse literally? 
if we lived to outdo one another in showing honor, what would become of us? What would become of you and me? How do we hold fast to what is good? We love one another with brotherly affection. We outdo one another in showing honor. And we are not slothful in zeal. This is the first part of verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. There's no apathy. See how all this links? There's no apathy. There's no indifference in the body of Christ. If you're apathetic, if you listen to the prayer request week after week after week and you're yawning or you're thinking about the ball game that's on this afternoon, let me gently poke you here. Because Paul says, under the mercies of God, under letting love be genuine, he says, there'll be no slouches in the body of Christ. There'll be no laziness. There'll be no indifference. There'll be no apathy. If I announce that somebody's got cancer, your heart's going to break. You're going to mourn with those who mourn. You're not going to sit there and say, thank God it's not me. I'm leaving. It's family. I mean, literally, family. And to the point that you keep your biological and nuclear family in an entirely separate category from the body of Christ is the degree to which you and I are conforming to the pattern of this age that we need to be able to pray for transformation by the renewing of our minds. How do we hold fast? By loving one another with brotherly affection, by outdoing one another and showing honor, and by not being slothful in zeal. Now, Paul does it here. It doesn't come across very clearly, but Paul then does it because he then asks the question, how then do I avoid being slothful? How do I avoid being apathetic? How do I avoid being indifferent? How do I avoid being lazy? It's one of those things that pastors just don't touch. Pastors don't touch gluttony and they don't touch laziness. We don't preach, it's in the Bible, but we don't touch it. Especially if the pastor is, is big. It's a bad testimony for a 300 pound pastor to stand up and preach against gluttony. I want to be careful here. I want to back that up just a little bit because there might be some of you with sensitivities, and I'm, I want to call, label myself as one of them. You know, we, people might have weight struggles for reasons beyond just the fact that they can't get away from the table. I understand that, and I want to say that out loud. But the Bible makes it very clear that overeating, that gluttony is a sin, and it's part of what it means to be lazy. Paul and the writer of Hebrews have very strategic passages that say to the churches that if you have these kinds of people in your midst, they ought not to be receiving the blessing of the church until they get busy. Paul says it to Timothy. Paul says it to the Thessalonians. And the writer of Hebrews says it in Hebrews chapter 6. So it's, it's in the Bible. Rarely will you hear me advocate busyness. Rarely. It's, it's the bane of my existence. I didn't call you because I knew you're too busy. You do? You do know that I am? How do you know that? Let me tell you that I'm too busy and I need to talk to you tomorrow. But it's here, so I have to, I have to go there. 
It's the only time I'll say to you, get busy. If you can't get away from the table, if you can't get away from the TV, get busy for the Lord and the service of his body. This isn't me yelling at you. This isn't me preaching, if you please. This is me with my finger on the text, urging you into a life that will be much more rewarding and joy-filled. That's what I want for you. I get no pleasure, none, out of bringing the hammer. I get great pleasure thinking, man, if they can stop being conformed there and be transformed here, they're going to know joy that they've never known. They're afraid, but they're going to know joy. It's going to bust open on them. So how do I avoid that? Verse 11, by being fervent in the Spirit. It's a capital S there. Being fervent, not in your spirit, but fervent in the Holy Spirit. See how it works? How do I avoid being slothful? By being fervent in the Spirit, serving the Lord. This is why I'm saying, get busy. If you're struggling with these things, you want to know God's blessing, and you want to know the outpouring of the Spirit in your life, get busy. Serve the Lord. Serve His body. Find a place to fit in. Just, just move it forward in increment. One of my mantras in life is the incremental long view. Lots of things that I would like to accomplish are not going to get done by tomorrow. But if I take a small step today and another small step tomorrow, in a year I can get there. That's how I think about you and my spiritual life. You're not going to become like Jesus tomorrow. But in a year you can be. In five, how many years you got left? I ask myself that all the time. A person in my demographic, a person in my demographic lives an average length of life just shy of 80 years. I do math all the time, just shy of 80. So I take 79, I subtract my age from it, and I say, this is what I have left. Let me go out busy for you. Not collecting shells by the seashore. I have all of eternity to enjoy the sea. I have unending days to read. It literally means, it literally, fervent literally means boiling. Let New York Baptist Church boil in the spirit. Let us be on fire. That's another way of describing it. On fire. Pray that into your life. I'm praying into your life. How do I avoid being gluttonous? How do I avoid being slothful and lazy? Be fervent in the spirit, serving the Lord. On fire for the Lord. Apollos in Acts 18 is described as one who is fervent in the spirit. Revelation 2.4. If you've been in the Revelation study, the book of Ephesians, the church at Ephesus, the first one of the seven that is mentioned. Some high notes, some low notes. What's the marquee expression about Ephesus? They lost their first love. I hear a number of people share testimonies with me. When they were first saved, they could not be stopped. It was Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Constantly in trouble because of Jesus. Five years in, 10, 20, 40. Pray revival into your heart. Pray that you'd be fervent in the spirit, that you would be boiling over, you'd be on fire serving the Lord. 
We need help doing that, guys. This can't be manufactured. This isn't me. That's it. I've heard it. For, uh, that was a great sermon today. That's it. Tomorrow, I'm waking up, and we're going to get after this. No, uh-uh. I don't want any of that. What I want is you going home and getting on your face and saying, boil over in me, Holy Ghost. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says what? Should be a banner over many of our lives, right? Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Whether you eat or whether you drink, see? Whether you eat or drink, you can eat or drink to the glory of God. We pray that regularly in my house over meals. We receive this as a good gift from you. Thank you, dear God. May we eat to the glory of God. Are you kidding me? Yeah, he's in those details. He cares about what you eat and the way you do it. He's not done. How are we to stay fervent in the Spirit, serving the Lord? He helps us. See how great this is? How, how it helps? Verse 12. How do we do it? How do we stay? Pastor, I'm with you. I'm on fire. I'm feeling it coming. What am, I, what am I supposed to do now? Am I supposed to whip this up, manufacture it myself? No, you're not. How do we stay fervent in the Spirit, serving the Lord? 12. Rejoicing in hope. You want to get hot for God? Rejoice in hope. What does that mean? Hope. Hope is future in the present. You keep your eye on the goal. You know where you're going. So you know that even your present day suffering is being overcome by the good that God has in store for you when, as we sung, come Jesus, come. You rejoice in hope. No matter what it is that's going on around me, Paul will describe it in 2 Corinthians as light and momentary afflictions. I'm not making light of this. I struggle. You know that I struggle. I have my own struggles with anxiety and trying to maintain my center on a day-to-day basis. And I have to keep reminding myself that this is not going to be my defining moment. This is not ultimately who I'm going to be. Why? Because I have hope. Because I know that tomorrow is coming. There's a lowercase t tomorrow, and there's an uppercase t tomorrow that that radically redefines the way I think about sickness. He has cancer. He's got six weeks to live. That's that's not the most horrible thing a a Christian can receive. I don't wish it on anybody. But why do we buy into this idea that I'm supposed to live forever on earth? How do I stay fervent in the spirit? We rejoice in hope. We keep our eyes on the end goal. By being patient in tribulation. John's saying this, 12-12. We, we stay fervent in the Spirit, serving the Lord by rejoicing in hope, by being patient in tribulation. Patient, persevering. What's God doing? Acts 14, 22, one of my favorite verses, Paul reminds us, Paul tells us, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You're not going to get into the kingdom of God on a smooth ride. It's not going to happen. If, it, if it's only smooth, be more concerned about being too smooth than too bumpy. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but Staten Island, particularly after the snow season, gives you a real good feel for what it's like to ride around in streets filled with potholes. John, nobody's getting that except you. I guess they all have smooth streets where they live in Staten Island. Uh, 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 Wow, that, that landed. Fervent in the spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation. Paul has addressed this a little earlier, hasn't he? In 5, 3, and 4, he says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Character produces hope. 
And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God has a purpose for tribulation. God desires more about your character development than he does your health. That does not preach outside of a biblically-based church. God cares more about your character than he does your health, your comfort, your safety. In fact, in order to make you more like Christ, he might put you in a very dangerous situation. Why? Because it'll strip you away and leave you with only him which is why over and over and over and over again, the psalmist just keeps repeating, hope in God, hope in God. My hope is in you, O God. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord by rejoicing in hope, by being patient in tribulation, and by being constant in prayer. Am I right? Am I right? When you're in trouble, you pray. (laughs) When you're in trouble, you pray. And sometimes the prayers are, help. I read somebody this week, great, great line I saw this week. You know, when we're not in trouble, we can, we can pray. We can unfold. We can pray things. This, this woman was recounting uh, some significant situations that she was enduring at the time, and she found herself only able to pray, Lord. I, I felt it. I mean, it brought tears to my eyes. I've prayed those prayers. Have you? Lord. I got nothing. Lord. Help. Those are prayers. Those are prayers. Constant in prayer. First Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. In Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 24, in this hope we were saved. Hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. For if we hope what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Watch now. 8.26, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. See, Paul, Paul has done the hope, tribulation, prayer thing earlier. In Romans chapter 8, he's got the three things going, and now he brings it out and unpacks it a little bit in Romans chapter 12. How do you stay fervent in the Spirit, serving the Lord? You keep your eyes on the prize, you be patient in your suffering, and you keep praying. You keep praying. Holy Ghost bellows. Holy Ghost bellows. If right now you're, 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 the fire in your belly is nothing more than a smoldering ember, he's coming. He's coming. He's coming. You remain patient in your tribulation. You stay focused on the end. You remain constant in prayer. Holy Ghost is coming. And that ember is going to start burning. And you're going to start serving. He's going to get glory. And you're going to get unending joy. He comes full circle. This is where we'll end. And he asks the question again, how how then do I let Love, be genuine. If verses 9 to 12 teach us how to relate to one another, see, this is all relational. We talked about these relationships. This is all relational in 9 to 12, but in verse 13, he he moves it a little bit. 
He moves the dial a little bit because verse 13 now talks about the material cost of these relationships. Now it's going to cost us something. Relationships that are governed by the mercies of God, relationships that are not conformed to this age, relationships that are transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so he tells us in verse 13, finally, how does love be genuine beyond the interpersonal dynamic? You contribute to the needs of the saints. This is another aspect of how love can be genuine in your life. You contribute to the needs of the saints. Follow me here. You You know a couple of Greek words. You know the word agape. This is agape love. You know the word koinonia. You know these Greek words. I don't like doing this. You, you, know, you know my thoughts on the languages, and I won't get into all that right now. But the fellowship right here, we talk about fellowship with one another. It's a sign over that room back there that says fellowship hall. That's, that, that's just really not a good name for that room. No offense to anybody. And we talk about we have fellowship with one another. You know what, you know what fellowship is here right here? The fellowship here is the needs. It's not the people, it's the needs. That's the word order. We have fellowship with the needs of those who are in need in the body of Christ. So we exhibit genuine love by fellowshipping in the needs of those who are in the body of Christ. That's what we have in common. It literally means fellowshipping in the material needs of one another. Look at what he says in 15. In 1525, He says, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. 26, Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. It's not just within within the house. We should be ready to share with Crossroads. We should be ready to share with Tottenville. We should be ready to share with Gateway and with, and with Bethel and with Salem. Talk about bursting your categories, right? Pastor John from Salem calls me and says, we have a need here. I ought to be able to stand in front of you and says, Salem has got needs. Can we, we do that incredibly well when Deshi's Hope brings the phone. You drop what you're doing. That's beautiful biblical fellowshipping in the needs of the saints right there. Beautiful. I cannot commend you more highly. But this is where Paul's getting. Not only in-house, and we're going to talk more about what it looks like out-house, but the way that love is genuine is by entering into the fellowship, contributing to the needs. And some of you have got those gifts to do that. And lastly, by seeking to show hospitality. This is the bugaboo. I wonder sometimes if Paul held this to the end because it's the one that derails a lot of people. Because hospitality is incredibly risky. It means you let strangers into your house. Kate and I had a magnificent extended season of hospitality. People just got messed up because Hannah, we came to Brooklyn. Hannah was only seven years old, and we had strangers living in our house. One of the things I had been praying, Kate and I had been praying for years, was that God would give us a house that we could not afford that would be bigger than our needs. Like, well, that doesn't sound very spiritual, Pastor. Well, it was that case because we wanted people to live with us. We moved to Brooklyn. Six months later, we had a crisis pregnancy that moved in. 16-year-old, young lady, lived with us. And it didn't stop for eight years. We had over 200 people live with us in the window, inside the window of eight years. By live, I mean anywhere from an overnight to two-plus years. We, 
We didn't write them all down, but we tried to figure it out one day. We were over 200 people, people from all over the world. You know what the question we got asked the most was? Aren't you afraid something's going to happen to Hannah? You don't even know those people? And they're living with you. Biblical hospitality is that. It's, 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 it's a compound word made up of love and stranger. Love for the stranger. That's what hospitality is. It's not Martha Stewart. It's not your best china. Biblical hospitality doesn't care if the room is dusted or not. Kate will tell you she had to work through that. The house had to be just so before somebody could come in. When things started to break because people were moving, were living with us, she realized that's not what it was all about. And when she let that go, the, the game changed. Remind me to tell you some of the hospitality stories. Waking up in the morning and finding my living room strewn with people that I didn't even know. That, that's a true story. Seek. Seek it, literally, to pursue. Pursue. Not if I feel like it. The house that you have right now is a gift given to you by God to do hospitality. Yes, it's a haven. It's a place for you to escape, shut the world out. But it is much, much more than that. You are strategically, sovereignly located right now in this moment to use your house as a kingdom outpost for the world. First century Rome needed this. Itinerants, they had no place to live. There were no, there were no Hampton Inns at the time. They were dependent upon people keeping them and putting them up over the night. And Jewish people who denied hospitality to people, shame came upon their households. You couldn't let it be known that you let a visitor pass by without opening the door to them. That's why Mary and Joseph, no room in the inn kind of thing, filled with shame because nobody was letting them in. Pursue. How do you let love genuine? Pursue hospitality, welcoming, loving the stranger. It's the exact opposite of xenophobia. You've heard that word, right? Because it's all over, the, all over the news. Xenophobia, fear of the stranger. Fear of xenos, fear of the immigrant. Fear of the sojourner. Fear of anybody that doesn't look like you. Biblical hospitality is exactly the opposite of xenophobia. Biblical hospitality is the word philos, xenos, love of stranger rather than fear of stranger. What answer the phobias that exist in the world today by doing something like this? I get one amen because I know how difficult this is for many of you in the room. The idea of you allowing somebody in your house. We're from Staten Island after all, and we know, we know that everybody is just waiting to mug us. An unloving, unity-destroying pandemic that is plaguing our neighborhoods this very moment is not called the coronavirus. Genuine love, in a list of things, will pursue biblical hospitality. I leave you with this question. What was going on in first century Rome that would make Paul write this? Read it backwards. Now read it backwards. Why would the apostle have to say things like this? It's a very intriguing question. I ask it of myself all the time because these are occasional letters. Paul didn't wake up in the morning and say, I'm just going to write a treatise called Romans. 
No, no, Paul's getting information, and Paul writes things that address what's going on in these places. That's what he does. So ask yourself, what's going on in first century Rome that he needs to describe genuine love like this? Now ask yourself the next question, and you know what it's going to be. What's going on right here in 21st century Staten Island? Because this letter, this letter was written to the Roman house churches in the first century, and it's written because we believe in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Scriptures, that this letter is for you today as much as it was for the first century Roman house churches. So now we ask ourselves, what's going on? I can't help but hear Marvin Gaye. Ooh, what's going on? It's a great question. Listen to the song someday. What was going on in first century Rome that would move God to include these spirit-inspired words of love and unity for the building up of the body of his son? And I leave you with this. Thank you for your patience. You've exhibited love like you do every week. What's going on in 21st century Staten Island that would move God to include these spirit-inspired words of love and unity for the building up of the body of his son? Here's what I do know. As we continue to ask whether or not we're ready for a new normal, we couldn't be in a better place than Romans chapter 12. I've told you that I expected to be well through Romans chapter 12 by now. And then there was a pandemic. And God interrupted. And he created a timetable that he wanted, not what I wanted. And it's for such a time as this, on the back end, we pray, of a pandemic that we're camping out in Romans chapter 12. Because the new normal, I pray, and I am wearing myself out, praying that the new normal looks like Romans 12 rather than anything else. I just want to ask you to join me in that prayer. Like really praying it. And then asking yourself, what will I do if God says, okay, let's do it. We'll camp in Romans 12 for a little bit longer before we move on. I love you. And I'm grateful for the love that you so regularly display for me, particularly in your patience. Romans 12 is life-altering. I, I want it for you. Help us, dear God. Help us, dear God. A, a lot has been touched on here, and a lot of it is weighty. It's part of me that wishes Paul had taken a breath somewhere. Help us to be this people I, I believe with my whole heart, Father, that there's not a person in this room or online that doesn't want their love to be genuine. I, I believe that with my whole heart. The problem comes in my own heart where I draw a line and say, this for me is what genuine love will be. And if you call me the genuine love that's beyond that line that I've drawn, that's where the trouble starts. Help me to yield to you, dear God. Help, help these saints, these, my friends, help them to yield to you, Father, to let go of their fears and their anxieties 
Remind them that everything they have, their houses, their money, their cars, their clothes, it is all yours. It is all from you. And it's been given to us for a purpose. For a loving purpose. So very simply, I close, Father, by praying that our love, that our love would be genuine. God help us. In the name of Jesus, amen.